Hey, how's it going? Champagne Sharks, this is Trevor. Catch us at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. Become a subscriber, $5 a month, and you get access to all the back premium episodes, over 100, in addition to the free ones. So by all means, go ahead and do that. You also get access to the voice and chat server at Discord. So it's really cool. Check that out. And without further ado, uh, we have with us uh, Matume. Say hello. Peace, peace. M. Tume again. Good to be back on Champagne Sharks. You know, I go back and forth with your name. I say M. Tume and Matume. Mm-hmm. And you don't correct me either way. So I don't know which one is the... It's M. M. Tume. Yeah. I M. Tume. Okay. I have, a, I have a bad habit of not correcting people with my name, but you know, whatever. Okay. So no more no more Matume for yeah. me. Strictly M. Tume. Yeah, okay. Uh, unless it's like, you know, someone calls me Tom or some shit. <laughs> I'll just be like, eh, it's fine. <laughs> and uh, we have our guest who I'll let introduce himself. I'm Dominic Taylor. I'm a professor at UCLA, uh, specializing in African-American theater. I'm the vice chair of graduate programs. I've been at UCLA now for uh, four years. Uh, Before that, I was all over. I was in Minnesota and I was in New York and I was in a bunch of places. I'm a professor and I am I teach playwriting, directing, and I teach four different classes on black theater primarily. Four classes in per semester or no, no, throughout? four classes. So black theater, some places they have one class on black theater. And when I mm-hmm. went to undergraduate, we had one class in black theater. But uh, over the time, because I've been teaching now for 20 years, I realized that it was a disservice to the art form and the way in which people made stuff. So my courses now, I have four different courses. One starts um, kind of pre-theater from 1619 to 1820. Then the second course starts from 1820 and goes to the Harlem Renaissance, 1920. Third course goes from 1920 to the Black Arts Movement. And then the last one goes from the Black Arts Movement to today. And so it's a... there are a variety of, of ways of looking at African-American theater and African-American performance modes, um, not just black theater. So we, we look at a bunch of stuff. So it's, it's, it's good. And it's a great thing to be studying because since I do it, I'm a writer and a director, former actor. That's kind of what I do, what I've been doing. I think this would be a good time for uh, M. Tume to uh, tell us a little bit about himself because I think yeah. it would kind of help you understand where uh, his questioning uh, comes from. Uh, to get it out up front, do not write or produce or do anything uh, <laughs> in the arts. So I just wanted to uh, say that up front, but I'll let um, M. Tume uh, describe himself a little bit. Well, actually, you know, my, my, my background is, is in theater. I, I come from a, uh, I, right now I'm a, a filmmaker and I, I'm also a professor of film at Purchase College, but I, I'm an active filmmaker. But my, my background comes from theater. And, you know, during my, I guess, social Black awakening, a lot of it happened in theater and studying like the Black arts movement and the, the Harlem Renaissance. So it's when I read your piece and you, you dropped Larry Neal and it, I was like, oh, that's one of the kind of, forefathers of a lot of the thought, but, you know, plays like Dutchman. I, I did a production of a of Leroy Jones and Maria Baraka's A Toilet when I was like 18. You know, it, it, that's that's really where my history comes from. And my, you know, and I brought that into, I went to four years of acting training at Purchase College, which is ironically that I teach there, but I teach in a, in a different department now. But so that's definitely, um, you know, when I read your piece, it, it, it resonated with, uh, with, with thoughts ideas that I've had for a long time and not and also some of the shared literature and idea makers that I you know have been drawing from for for some years and full disclosure 
M2 May was the one who put me onto your article. He sent it to me and he said, you have to read this article. It's pretty good. So yeah. 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 So he was the one who was uh, responsible for me even finding out about the article. That's why I thought it'd be good to have him on this, on this episode to discuss it. No, I'm yeah, glad. And I, and I, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And I act and an actor homie of mine threw it at me. I, one day he, um, he he sent it to me wanting to have a conversation about, you know, black theater and stuff like that, a brother. And he said, you got to read this, man. So he sent it to me. And then when I finally got around to reading it, I was like, oh, man, I sent it over to Trevor. I was like, you, you got to check this out as we were talking about slave play. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, slave play. I mean, we could have a whole conversation about that. But but I, I think Don't I'm worry. glad that you you read it. I mean, I've been talking about this for a long time, this kind of thing for a long time. I think it is. I mean, one of the bad things about theater, and I don't know, M. Tumi, if your training was inside this box, but, but one of the weirdest things about theater that has black people in it is it conflates everything. So when people talk about uh, Dave Talbert or Tyler Perry's play, they also will put it in the same conversation with Susan Laurie Parks or Ntozaki right. Shanga. And I'm like, the thing which I was... Uh, a challenge for me, and this goes back to some personal stuff, but also some other stuff, um, some intellectual stuff. So the personal and the intellectual, I'm, I'm making a separation, was that conflating that is idiotic. You know what I mean? It's idiotic in a way that I couldn't even explain, particularly in the, you know, in the article, I do say that African-American theater is different than black theater for a functional reason. It's like calling a dog a cat. But in the same way, black music no one calls uh, black classical music hip hop or no one calls gospel music jazz. They're all unique and they all have unique things. And I think one of the things about slave play and a lot of plays that have been written recently is that because they're written by black people, people think that they're for black people. And the thing right. which is a challenge is they're not for black people. They're constructed by black people. But the primary audience is not a black audience. And it goes, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a conversation I've been trying to have for a long time. And it grows out of, when you talk about Amiri Baraka, he's one of my, um, um, the late Baraka was one, a very significant person in my life. I was born in New Jersey. I have a whole bunch of stories about Amiri and I. Word. Um, Word. And he was a fantastic influence on me. Um, not just not just his plays, but actually his thinking on theater, which were really significant, yeah. the way in which he started Bart's and all that other kind of stuff. He's he's a fascinating cat, but also the work. You know, I I was um, I went to Brown, but uh, George Houston Bass, who I mentioned in the article, was one of my professors, and he started Rights and Reasons Theater, which is a was a black professional theater on campus. And uh, he had this really complex and fascinating research to performance method. He had a historian on staff, Rhett Jones, who was a professor. All of their work went through a, a, a crucible to make it what it was, you know, this really kind of intense process. And then when I left school, I mean, I, I'm going to mention my time in school, but when I left school, one of the things I found interesting about the majority of theater making and producing entities, and this is in the 80s, is all they wanted to do was have a black body. They didn't care about the content. They didn't care about how it resonated with the black community. They just needed a black body. And that's on the heels or alongside the, the growth of August Wilson. One thing that's uh, interesting to me about your article is it's very focused on the theater. But what you were talking about, I've noticed, I think I've talked to M. Tume about it. I know I've talked to the other co-hosts about it, about how black television is like that now. Like if I don't want to go too much into this tangent because I want to keep it very much on theater, which is and what Black article. film, I'll throw that in there. Yeah, as well. yeah, black film as well. But it's like there was a lot of disparaging in the '90s and and arts, and 
and stuff about like uh the quote unquote chitlin circuit on tv and upn and wb and you know fox but there was something about those shows that in retrospect they've aged kind of a lot better than I think people give them credit for. I mean, look at those half and half and one-on-ones and whatever. <laughs> I mean, they weren't winning like Emmys or anything, but they were clearly like by black people for black people, or at least, you know, there was some kind of black presence in the creation. Like I'm, I'm sure there were some white people in the white, in the writer's room and in the production of it. I'm not naive enough to think that they had a full black backstage, you know, but uh, when I look at what counts as black tv now and this is not related to the actual quality of the work i'm not saying these works are good or bad but they're just qualitatively different and like insecure or um or blackish and all this stuff there's the sense like like, for example like blackish straight up explains to the audience and that alone kind of makes it show that it's uh made with a multicultural audience in mind. It's basically holding hands uh, throughout it, where <laughs> if you watch an episode of Martin, there's no explanation of anything. E- e- you know, there's slang, there's uh, all types of stuff, and it's understood that you're... It's... um. I forget which one is high context communication, which one is low low context, but the one, but uh, I guess now it's low context. It's made for everyone to be able to is, yeah. jump into, but the old stuff was high context. You went in and it was like going to a family reunion or something. And when I saw like what you were talking about with theater, I don't know if these are things that have occurred concurrently. I don't know if it happened first in one art form and is now happening with theater or whatever, but I definitely feel like this is a kind of maybe crisis is an overstating word, but it's it's a dilemma that's uh, kind of across the board in all types of entertainment now. Well, no, I mean I think it's true across the board. I mean I don't I don't want to unpack film, and M two may you might speak more directly to film. I actually think that the theater is just a, a response to the social situation. I think it's true in film. I think it's true in music. I mean, I've I've said to people for years, it's so fascinating to watch what used to be authentic Black music, and then it becomes focused on the hyphen, the bridge, trying to reach white audiences, trying to... I mean, even back in the day, everybody knew that Rapper's Delight was a reach out to the suburbs. You know I mean? Like, no one was Mm -hmm. thinking that that was, like, an authentic thing. And then the message is sitting somewhere else with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I mean, I think one of the things which is hard about television and film is... Wait, yeah. wait, can I ask yeah. you a quick question? Can I ask you a quick question? Uh, hold that thought. But do you think, you said no one thinks it's authentic. Do you think that goes for the white people too? Because sometimes I think the white people might think it's authentic. I think it's something authentic. This is something I don't oh, no, know the no, answer I, to. I, like, I, will, that- I will go, I might say mm-hmm. this. And I, you know, it's not all white people. I'm not going to say that. But yeah. I do think they think it's authentic. I mean, this is, this okay. is as, and I, I don't want to get caught in a the theater history game, but when Jim Crow when T.D. Rice did his Jim Crow performance in Blackface and he's wheel about, turn about, jump Jim Crow, white people thought that was a real black person on stage in Blackface. Like one of the things which is fascinating is that people, people thought that stuff was real. And then you have to come back and be like, no, it's not real. And then even the people who are trying to counter that false narrative, um, William Wells Brown wrote this play in 1858. And inside the play, he's countering this, nar- no one re- saw the play. I mean, it's limited I mean, it never had a production in his lifetime. It was read to abolitionists in 1858. Um, Penumbra Theater in, in Minnesota did the only professional production or the first professional production in 1975 or something. But to go to your point, white people think that that black image is the authentic one. I mean, it's the, 
you know, it's the get your job going blackness that people think is real. But the truth of the matter is anybody who lives in black skin in a black community knows we're much more complicated than that. I mean, we're always more complicated than that. But um, what sells is easier. I mean, it's the thing which I joke with my students about when when we're talking about image construction. It's like the black image is like Taco Bell. Ain't nobody, th- ain't nobody real thinking Taco Bell is authentic Latinx cuisine. You know what I mean? <laughs> Nobody's really thinking that, right? right? But the thing that happens is black images, one, they get constructed, and two, and this is not about the image construction, nor is this about the individual, they get lauded for that. So Denzel Washington wins an Oscar for a film in which you have a white boy savior narrative. Ethan Hawke is the white boy savior, right? In Malcolm X... Denzel is the savior. He can't win an Oscar in that space, but he can win the Oscar where he's the black devil in Training Day. I mean, I'm, I know that it's a different film and Spike Lee is different and all of this other kind of stuff. But the truth of the matter is the image or the images that we project, to go to your point, Trevor, I think that white America v- views them as authentic. I think that the challenge is that black America embraces them because they make money. And that's a dangerous embrasure point. Like I tell people all the time, that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous thing to do. Because if that's the case, to quote Malcolm X again, you will be laughing when it's not funny and scratching where it don't itch. It's it's a dangerous place to be because then you're selling your culture just for some money. And, and you know, you know, it's weird too. Sometimes some of these people aren't actually selling their culture. It's because they're black. They get to pretend it's their culture and then sell it, which is, I think, a little even more insidious because there's some people who like i get the feeling they discover their actually you know what doesn't even need to talk hypotheticals let's use uh jeremy o'harris he pretty much an article that he wrote about like decolonizing my desire and have you read this article yeah and in that one what what i found interesting about him is um he's one of those people that talks a lot it's like with law you know they tell you don't talk too much because just by talking (laughs) a lot you're gonna give the game away and he seems to just like talking. And it's fascinating because he gives away a lot of the game, whether intentionally or not, because he seems to like the sound of his voice. And that article, I thought was very, it was in a way almost kind of courageous as much as it uh, disturbed me. But he basically said that he wanted to be an Abercrombie boy. He wanted to be um, one thing, but he realizes I'm the way I look, the way where I'm from, where my family's from, I'm never going to be a convincing white guy, but I can be what these people are looking for in a black guy. And I can, so he basically said he leaned into blackness as a way to appeal to white people. And it was his way to seduce white people. And I just found it crazy. He could write an article blatantly admitting this. And then the con works anyway. It's like someone saying, hey, I'm going to walk over to you and punch you in the face. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And then and then you let me walk over there and punch you in the face. Yeah. It's uh it's very fascinating. Well, well, you know what's also interesting about that is, and I, I'm remembering that art, that article about Jeremy or Harris, and it also hits on another point where it, white people also don't really want an authentic image of black people. They want a confirming image of black people that's confirming to the way that they see black people in the world. Because it's not like, you know, Chameleon Street can get made in the late 80s, right? It went at Sundance, but then when it gets to the chance to go mainstream, they're like, nah, we don't accept that. So when they get an actual, like, authentic piece of blackness, they'll be like, nah, we'll shun that. 
And so they, it's not just they, they, they want something that confirms how we look. And that's why Jeremy's article was so weird to me because he wasn't necessarily giving them an authentic blackness. He was giving them a blackness that would make the white person feel like empowered amongst a black person, like invited. But, and, but, but, and, and that's what's so insidious about it also to me. But it also shows that they actually don't even really care exactly, about, totally. about the authenticity. They care about the plausibility of the, authentic, <laughs> of the artistic, right, artistic. Right. Like, like, can you give us something that plausibly authentic? We don't really care um, at the end of the day, if it even really is authentic, is it just something that you know is uh, plausible yeah. and titillate and- my fantasy, like make it actually real and come in my face, like being actually the fantasy that I've had for black about black people, put it in my face, and I'm going to be really happy, and I'm going to give you a lot of money for it as well. When you said come in my face, I thought you meant something no, sexual. No, no. I'm, I'm, I'm like that's that's so goes that's so goes with the theme of like what exactly his right. work is. But, but, exactly. no, but I think totally. the thing that happens, and I'm not. I'm not picking on Jeremy because this is much before Jeremy. A lot of it is the money. A lot of it is, you know, the thing which, and and Tumi, your your point is what I often talk about in class where I talk about why people go to art. They either go to challenge their existence or affirm their existence. And what ends up happening in most times, Mm. the affirmation of their existence is the reason why they do what they do. You know what I mean? So they're like, oh, this affirms Mm -hmm. my existence. So the first so-called straight play that made it to Broadway was a play in 1928 called Appearances. And it was written by this dude named Garland Anderson, who's a bellhop. And people are like, how'd this black play get to Broadway in 1928? It was directed by a white guy. But the key about the play is, Carl, a bellhop, is accused of accosting a white woman in the play. And Carl, at the beginning of the play, says, I'm gonna stand with the justice system and it will prove me correct. This is what he says in the beginning of, and in 1928, when black people are getting lynched all over the country, the justice system proves him correct because the woman who accused him was a black woman who was passing for white. And when she was discovered to be black, it, it sealed up everything. It's a crazy play. It ran all over the country. It ran on Broadway. It ran all over the country. And people were like, how did this thing become successful? Du Bois wrote about it. All these people were like, what's up? But the deal was, Anderson tapped into something that said, oh, I'm going to let all of you mostly white people or mythical multicultural audience feel good about the American justice system. And it worked for him. And this is a thing which I think is true about a lot of these Mm. products. When you're looking at Blackish's Reach Across or a lot of these television programs or films where they reach across and they try to find Mm. ways in which they can have their cake and eat it too, have a little bit of flavor, a little bit of flavor, enough to make it interesting. But then don't in any way try to uh, call the task, the systems or the power, power brokers or anything in any real way. It lets people feel comfortable that, oh, yeah, all of us are the same. We all in the same thing together and not deal with the multiple problems or issues about black life in America. And that's where even a show that people don't pay attention to, a show like Sanford and Son, for crying out loud. I'm not even talking about Frank's plays. I'm talking about a lot of shows that use coded language to get messages to black people in the 70s are fascinated to go back and look at. And you're like, wait a second, he's an Mm -hmm. entrepreneur, but he had a really interesting kind of engagement, um, uh, Red Fox did, through that series. I mean, it's, it's interesting, much more, it's not the most revolutionary show of all time. But it had something for black audiences to tap into. What I liked about Sanford and Son, right, was this very typical uh, sitcom in some ways. It's even based on a white sitcom from England called uh, Steptoe and Son. But I, like, people always joke, like, I have the, like, 
cultural sensibility of like a 80 year old black man. Like I <laughs> listen to like weird things. Like I listen to a lot of like Blowfish and Lawanda Page and like for some reason Spotify has and, and Google Play Music has all this stuff. And I'll just listen to like, you know, that stuff where they don't even really have just a joke and a punchline. It's like a weird kind of vaudeville type of storytelling that really like filthy stuff. And when I started listening to that stuff, I started realizing this was in Sanford and Son. Like he basically brought Lawanda Page from the, I think if I know the story right, he kind of pushed for her to be on the show because she was she was a stand-up. And a lot of their interaction, a lot of their, the way they kind of bust on each other. And Pam and Martin had the same thing in um, Martin. They were kind of continuing that tradition. Like there was a call and response and a mm-hmm. thing they had that when I started listening to these old comedy records and some of them were like duets and stuff, I started realizing like, wow, this was, they were bringing something to the screen that had an old history. They kind of snuck it in there into this remake of a, of a white British show that was very British and class-based. They brought something uh, authentically uh, black to it. And I don't, I feel like I don't feel that in these new shows. These new shows are just basically, you know, like they're weird. Like Blackish is not a bad show. I don't want people to think I'm beating up on the show, but it's very, very conscious of the gaze of another. Well, I think your your point about high context and low context really, really sticks out. Like I was having this conversation. I have this conversation a lot, a lot of times in my film classes because film has become very much a medium where, um, especially in America, where there's like a low context expectation in movies that like you have to spoon feed audiences in order to understand them. It's a, it's a lot of times where like a lot of foreign films, and I put those in quotations, or films from other nations don't get you know, a lot of play in in the U.S. major markets unless they, you know, like a crouching tiger will because, you know, it's pleasing to the eyes and things like that. You got you got sword swinging and things like that. But something like a bit more, you know, high context, meaning you have to know about the culture uh, to watch it, it draws people off in America, mainly white people also who 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 fill who fill theaters. Th- there's been a drive. I see it in work, especially work of the people who are black in this country or come from subcultures. You're not doing it right unless you're making it in a almost pandering way accessible to mainstream audiences. And it's all coded language. We know what mainstream audience means. It means white folks. That's yeah, and, <laughs> and Crouching Tiger was made with like four um, companies at once multinationally so it was always created to be to have crossover appeal uh the last thing i want to bring up and then i want to like bring it directly to um the article because i do want to keep it on theater you know i I want to talk about the other stuff but bring it back to theater and your article but uh somebody told me something once and i wish i could remember who it was i can give him credit but uh this is not my insight so i just want to say that up front uh, but someone said like, uh, people now want, uh, well, not now, but like they always have, but more than ever, he said, like they want art that's a mirror and not a window. So, so, mm. so they want art that's like going to mirror themselves back at themselves, uh, rather than give them a window into something else. And I feel like black art is becoming that, like the black characters, the black situations or whatever uh they're not meant for the audience to have a window into the black life but the black people themselves are literal mirrors the black people are there to mirror something back to the white people about themselves we used to have this uh, phrase this term on the show we haven't used it recently but i think it 
ties into what uh, you were talking about earlier. Uh, we were seeing how a lot of the people who are uh, very big in uh, quote unquote black Hollywood now uh, are best described as like coffee creamers, as in like they're there to put cream in the coffee. Like people want coffee, but a lot of people can't handle just straight black coffee. It's too, they find it bitter. They find it too powerful, too strong, too intense, but they like the coffee, but they need, they need a creamer. Like, like these people aren't really the coffee. They're the creamer. They're, they're what's making, uh, the coffee palatable. And I think a lot of these people now in uh, so-called black arts are basically that with blackness. Like uh, we want something that, you know, is coffee or a coffee product. We want blackness, but we want it made digestible, made uh, palatable, make it sweet, make it uh, light. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think when people discuss high context and low context art, they forget that the high context art is layered but it also has some spice on it. Like I, you know, I make a comparison to the mm-hmm. food all the time. So, you know, if you're going to go to an Indian restaurant with the people from India, you know, post Raj India, and you say, I want it the way you have it. Oftentimes they'll be like, you can't handle that because it's too hot for you. Yeah. But I'm like, no, that's the way I want it. I'm asking you to give me the real deal. You know, I mean, it's like uh, I have this George Clinton moment in my head where it's like, you know, you want some doobie in your funk? That sounds like it got a three on it to me. I don't want it like that. I want it pure. I want it uncut. Now, most of um, America's audience doesn't want it uncut. They don't want to see black life as complicated as it is because we have, I mean, we, I mean, it has an edge to it. It has a spice to it. It has a bite to it. It has some stuff that, you know, makes you uncomfortable, as, as, as Amiri Baraka would tell me. It's like, if they're not uncomfortable, you're not doing your job. And that's, that's true. It's true. And a lot of Black people, to be honest, are not very different. Like, like there's, there's um, a lot of Black people who've been immersed in white environments uh growing up etc and they kind of realized and this was made explicit in uh jeremy harris's piece but i don't think he's alone it's easy to use him as an example because he's one of the few people who straight up just basically said it but uh i don't think he's alone but basically uh there's black people to whom the idea of black authenticity is almost as foreign to them as it is to a lot of white people they know but they realize that by because of how they look they they're asked to sell it because of how they look, but also because they know how to make white people comfortable. You know, as in, we know you grew up around us. You know how to navigate us. You know how to uh, pacify us. You've been used to kind of walking a tightrope around us. We don't have to worry about you really confronting us in a way that requires us to really do anything. Like, for example, like, Slave Play is kind of like a trauma show, but so it feels like it's confrontational but it's not but and i've done yeah it's not and i've done this um on twitter i made a thread about it because i had been asking people on twitter over and over and i started collecting the responses but people were like there are two words over and over processing unpacking processing unpacking so then i started asking people everyone says processing and unpacking but nobody ever comes back and says what they got from it after they process and unpacked so tell me now what is your what do you think is the intended takeaway of the play. And there was, I started getting all this word salad from everybody, jargon and gobbledygook. And 
I was like, it's just a simple question. What do you think was the takeaway? What did you learn from this play? Or what insight, what breakthrough did you have that you didn't have before? What was crystallized? Or what do you think? And either they can't say it or what they do say is the most banal thing. Like, you know, uh, white people need to listen. And I'm like, okay, so <laughs> white people need to listen. So what did you hear the black people in the play say once you listen? And they'll be like, well, that white people need to listen. So it's a tautology. You know, it's like, there's nothing. So you, you heard that white people need to listen. And what you heard when you listen is that white people need to listen. Like, that's nothing. You haven't learned anything. Or someone said, you know, white people need to atone for, you know, things their ancestors did. And like, okay, you're just spitting out things you already knew. And try to apply it to this place. but So I was like, okay, so what they need to atone for that this play showed you? And they couldn't really say because the play made the sex look kind of fun. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's, it's, and it's true in Octoroon. It's true in a lot of plays. But the thing which I say about the, ten, the 21st century playwrights who are doing this, they think that they're the first black kid who is the only kid in the room full of white people going to school. And they weren't. They weren't. Mm-hmm. I mean, now, right. albeit... Integration changed everything. You know, Brown v. Board of Ed shifted everything. And this is not a theater history lesson, but there's this play called Take a Giant Step, written by Lewis Peterson. It was a play, it was on Broadway the year before Raising yeah, the Sun. That play, yeah. And in the play, it's mm-hmm. a black boy. It's a, it's a funny play in some ways. It's a black boy who's in his Connecticut suburb. He's a wealthy boy. He's a wealthy boy. And his white friends start to disown him because puberty's kicking. And it's this funny scene. In the, it's not funny to most people, but it's funny to me. And it's funny to any black student who comes in contact with it. His only friend is his grandmother. And he asks his grandmother where the black side of town is. And when I teach the play, I'm like, this is a black boy in a black family. He doesn't know where the black side of town is. It's hilarious. And then he goes to the black side of town. Mm-hmm. And- he takes a bus to the black side of town. And he's trying to find a woman. And he's reading... Sigmund Freud. Oh, it's a trip. It's a tripped out play, but it's a real honest examination of this boy's existence and him feeling isolated. It's an entirely, it's a fascinating play. You know what's what's crazy about that? Just that description, I didn't even see the play had insight in it. I could tell you an insight I could take away from that just by the description. Whereas I actually saw slave play in the theater and I had no insight to take away from it. It's entirely uh, titillation, and that's yeah. the only thing that they deal with. I mean, it's like it's not it's not poverty. It's not it's 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 not poverty porn, which is a different thing that happens inside cinema. But it's a it's a similar thing in which we're using slavery, or we're using I mean, a situation to play a sex game on top of, and and the audience mm-hmm. is supposed to go away, and white people are supposed to have. I guess white people who have black partners might have a different conversation when they go home. I mean, you know, but I, I'm just like, I don't know what, the, like you said, I don't know what the takeaway from the play is other than Jeremy getting some money, those actors getting some money, which I mean, those are positives, individual positives. I'm not saying Robert O'Hara is a director. He gets, a, everybody gets a little money. So that's a positive, I guess. But in terms of the black community and what the black community is building from that play, I don't know. You know, I don't I don't see anything. In it. I don't see any positive in it. And I also don't think that it's art, which is another thing. Well, yeah. yeah. One, one thing that was when I was in the theater and I was I was as fascinated by the people around me as I was or maybe more so than what was going on in the screen and stuff. And there were a lot of interracial couples there. 
uh, they were really on the edge of their seats. And I felt like whatever they were getting out of it was not what we were being told they were going to get out of it. Like it, it was pure like titillation and stuff. And I remember the, like when the show was over and the curtain went up, uh, there was this couple, it was a black guy and a white girl. And the white girl jumped up like smiling and did a standing ovation. And the black <laughs> partner looked like a little bit like um, embarrassed, you know. But uh, one thing I noticed with the play, he was trying really hard to almost overcompensate in his laughing things that to me i thought were like horrifying and i'm like why are you laughing at this like mm. she can kind of understand being a little clueless but i felt like a lot of people in the audience were especially the black people were like weirdly overcompensating in how much they were uh acting like this play was um mind-blowing but from a white person's perspective especially if i was in a interracial couple i think i would love to play because it kind of makes it seem like black people's world kind of evolves around like i would feel really good because because I've, I've never seen a play where it's like white people are like agonizing over the spell that black people have over them like a sexual spell and how you know we just can't sexually get them out of our minds and stuff yeah. and you know um no that's that's actually a really great point and i think that happens a lot in theater and i hope and it doesn't happen a lot in other art forms i mean i it's one of those things that, and I'm going to quote Baraka again, the thing which is weird, when you listen to James Brown doing talking loud and saying nothing or get up, get into it, get involved, he ain't thinking about white people. He ain't, he's trying to make what right. he's making. Uh, Mary Baraka had this, it's not a haiku, he called it a loku. And I, I loved it. He said, if Elvis is king, then who is James Brown? God. Brown. Mm. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's yeah, like I love that one. I know that. That's Barack. Yeah. And it's real because yeah. James, James might have been thinking about, you know, Elvis's success. But what he was trying to do is he's trying to make some art. He's trying to make something that's real. He ain't studying Elvis. And that's the thing, which is weird. So many of these theater artists, even their rhetoric. And I have to I have to push people all the time to get away from like white systems of understanding. That's part of the reason why I mentioned all these black playwrights and black plays. I say this to people who are doing classical music. If you're doing classical music, go get your Samuel Coleridge Taylor on. Go get your Leontine Price on. If you're doing film, get your Misha together. Get everybody, you know what I'm saying? Get all your ancestors together because you're going to mess yourself up if you think the way to make authentic whatever kind of cultural product you're going to make is going to go through some white prism, you are confused. It's just not, that's not the prism to go through. It's not going to help you. Yeah, it's interesting because, I, I, you know, Trevor, you had said you was wondering what you think um, black people get out of this. Right. And I honestly, I actually see what those black people get out of this. And it's something I, I you know, we're reading your article, uh, Professor Taylor. I was thinking about something about the idea of the of audience and of black audience, because I think these black people like it for that mirror. They're seeing a confirmation of the kind of black or African-American or socially mobile black ideology they're running for. It's like, because like, you know, I tell black people the same thing. Like, yo, if you want to, you know, get in a black film, you got to know who Holly Garima is. You got to get your Kathleen Collins on and your Julie Dash on. But they only interested in Julie Dash because Beyonce took her. And she's popular and white people are into it. And then I realized something. I realized they only want thing that's confirmed their kind of certain kind of social status. And it's interesting when I was reading your piece, you were talking about African-American theater, you know, and like the, the white people. I said, you know, I went to a movie. I'm not going to say the movie because I don't want to like people to think about the movie to discount what I'm saying. But I went to see a movie at this black film festival, very bougie, very upper class, nothing but black people up in there. I didn't like the movie. Right. 
and a couple of black people who come from like a very kind of different social class and the black people who were, you know, running the theater and were there going to see the movie. We didn't they didn't like it either. But all these upper crust black people loved it. And I was like, they like it because it confirms the kind of world that they're living in and the kind of deals they're running around with white people and the different kind of relationships they are developing with, with white people as these socially mobile black people. And I think that's another element to me of, of a lot of this that I see. There's like a like there's a black community, but there's so many divisions within us. And there's a certain cast of us like Jeremy O'Harris is is a part of where they're like, yo, we are on some other stuff. We're not about those people, about those lower class black. I was was rereading Langston Hughes, Negro Artist in the Racial Mountain. He was talking about, you know, how he was talking about um, what is it? Don't don't be like niggers. Uh, Look how well the white man does things, right? Those kinds of black people. And I'm like, they still exist and they're the ones who are doing this. And when they go to slave play, they're seeing their story and their vision of a new world. And that's why I feel, but of course they're not a majority because the majority of people are like, nah, I, I can't fuck with this. They're, they're, not, my- they're, not a, they're not a majority, but they have the ears, purse strings of white people in yep. a way that a lot of black people don't. So don't they get have. to have a disproportionate uh, influence as far as like they've kind of self-appointed managers of black people or, yeah. or, or or middlemen of black people. But it's already self-appointed. There's no actual <laughs> right. constituency or or, or there was no vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was no there was no vote. Like like a lot of times I'll know of um, black people because I follow a lot of white media and I'll tell like my black friends about it and they'll be like, who is that? And I forget. Oh yeah, I forgot. A lot of people don't know who this person is. It's somebody that uh, has been appointed. They nominated themselves and then a white person appointed them and uh I want to ask you guys a question, right? Um, movies like Train Spotting or Re- Requiem for a Dream, like uh, two questions, because uh, those are movies where the drug dealer, the drug addicts, are not very three dimensional. Like you know, it's not like something like Man with the Golden Arm, where there's like it's one guy and there's a lot yeah. of focus on his life. You know, this is kind of like three or four people or six people who are just having antics, and it's like in movies like that, is the movie about the addicts as? people and characters or is it about the drug and also do addicts get anything out of watching a movie like that and the reason i ask those two questions is because i feel like slave play and things like that are about addiction and it's about like black people addicted to white people i'm like yeah. is it about the black people who are the addicts or is it about uh the white people who are the drugs because it, it felt as harrowing or crazy as a train spotting a requiem for a dream like these people are just debasing themselves for their drug it made me think it made me think of more of those movies than any uh, black movie or mm-hmm. black well, the thing the thing that happens which is always the funky thing about cultural construction on stage is that it doesn't operate just around the event now slavery is this event which is you know people argue black culture is made because of slavery you know what i mean people might argue that what is called black culture is all of these africans who were freed who were brought here who subsequently made a new culture and this new culture is black culture. So slavery is a different item than drug addiction in any of those series of ways. But then the other piece I was going to say is that when people see slave play, and this is the thing which is the power of theater, but also the power of cinema, they apply that to all black people. So it is not as if that's mm-hmm. an isolated event. Like those black people are, are fascinated by white people and are engaged in something. They think that about 
everybody who's black. And that's one of yeah. the things which is the, the, the damaging piece. Nobody thought, after you left Requiem for a Dream, everybody ain't thinking all, all, all the old white ladies in, in, um, in Brooklyn are, d- are drugged out. Do you know what I'm saying? Ain't nobody thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not, yeah. you, you, you don't make the connection. Even if you go to uh, Brighton, it was Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach? Yeah. Brooklyn was where Requiem, Coney yeah. Island's where Requiem set, yeah. right? Nobody's thinking, oh yeah, all those old white yeah. ladies. They all hooked on something, but <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? it's a different animal because we, unfortunately, we get thrown into the same um, bag together. And then these artists have a responsibility. Well, it's whether or not they want to embrace that responsibility or they, they, they just have a consciousness. They know that they're making something that's that's translating to all kinds of black people. They know that. And then they have to deal with the ramifications or maybe not, not deal with the ramifications of it. Because I think somebody said that they are above this or they think that they're above this. I think it was you, M. Tume, who think that they're above this. I don't think that's the case because yeah. I actually think they're going to be replaced in a minute anyway by the next one. Maybe they, yeah. Yes, of course, yeah. totally. And they never, they always are. You know, an interesting thing, if you think about some things like Requiem for a Dream and Train Spot, I know like in classic melodrama studies, those are actually um, very akin to like old class films where you have these like class tragedies and, you know, Race films, the kind of how white people made race films and race narratives came out of those class, came out of those class films. So it's interesting that you find a connection and they're, 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 they still are very demeaning and, and the whole ideology around them are based on confirming the, the fantasies and the, uh, the, the, the wishes of the, distanced viewer the viewer who will never actually experience that like, like yeah precious. No. yeah like precious like i i guarantee you um working class um uh whites in 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 the uk get nothing from train spotting like they get absolutely nothing from it but, right but you, but you know that happened with precious too when i saw precious in downtown brooklyn people were laughing throughout the movie one thing that i brought up uh online that people were laughing throughout the movie and then a lot of people were thought oh this must be uh somebody responded to me oh you know this must be a sign of like you know how black culture is uh you know needs improving you know, one of those like type of respectability politics thing i'm like no they're laughing at it because it's fucking co- it's fucking comical to them like you know they, they don't relate yeah. to it it's not because they're like the first thought was oh these people they're so, they're so um pathologized that you know this is just funny to them and they don't have the empathy even for themselves it's like no it's because they don't see themselves on the screen they think it's a it's a horror comedy yeah i'm, yeah. I'm sorry i cut you off but it's it's yeah, it's it's all about sorry. It's all about confirming their 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 feelings and their 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 viewpoints. Now, for I agree with Professor Taylor though. Like when it comes to like race and culture, especially Black people, it's even more damaging because there's still a scenario where they can envision the train spotting guy, you know, getting himself together and like train spotting too and becoming president. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or like in Requiem for a Dream, you know, maybe if they did a sequel. And Jared Leto, you know, got himself together, became a millionaire. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't bat an eye. But if Precious, you know, <laughs> comes out and becomes, you know, a superstar in a real authentic, or actually not, not even a superstar, becomes an authentic, multidimensional human being, they're not going to buy that. They, 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 they still need her to be in the poverty porn. Yeah. Image. I mean, because America, and, and, America you know, really, you know, and I, I think one of the things which is so bizarre about america is the location of the black body is the central of the is the central question of of america so you know gunnar meridal called it you know the the 
the problem of the 20th century. But the truth of the matter is that three-fifths compromise made people say, well, who are those people? Those are Black-looking people. And then when you started popular culture manifesting itself, whether it be Jim Crow by T.D. Rice or The Klansman, the play that turned into Birth of a Nation, the first you know, major American piece of cinema, the question of who the Black person is in this world is central to the American question. The crazy part about this is Black people, instead of fighting that image or those images, are apologizing for their presence. It's a weird thing. Like, even when you're talking about people embracing the, the poverty porn, it's like, oh, that's something that is those people. It's those people. And I, and I grew up in working class New Jersey. And so I tell mm-hmm. people that one of the things which is so fascinating to me is I never see all of the people that were part of my life when I was a kid. Like, seriously, the people who were part of my life, who were complex people, who maybe were on one side of the law or the other side of the law, but they were, they were dealing in complicated ways, dealing with complicated understandings of the world. Their situation with, just I'll give you the perfect simple example. Somebody talks about this idea of absentee father. I was a kid. There was this dude who had a wife. I mean, I'm sorry, had some children. And he was taking care of his children, but he was not married to their mother because being married to their mother shifted the economic situation in their home. So he was not married. He also occasionally had to be away from them. Hmm. And his complex relationship with money that he earned on the books and money that he earned off the books the off-the-bucks money was occasionally him going to caddy up in a New Jersey golf co- course, you know what I'm saying? And then coming back and giving her the money. But these aren't the stories that anybody thinks are interesting because it's much more interesting if he's just sticking up people off, off, the, off the records, you know what I'm saying? And so one of the things that happens, which is so true, is like black people, if you examine your black life in any kind of complex way, it does not show itself on television or cinema the way commercial cinema operates the way commercial cinema operates. You have to go to like some other stuff, some Billy Woodbury, bless their little hearts kind of world, or some other stuff. You're not going to get it in the commercial venues. And so when you go into talking about Broadway and you're talking about some of these places sitting on Broadway, you got to know they're trying to sell you something which is in the line of Birth of a Nation and the Klansmen as opposed to something else. They're going to try to get you some, some stuff that's, I hate to say it, that's bad for you personally, It'll make you some money in your pocket, but it's bad for you personally. It doesn't, it doesn't help the culture grow. It doesn't reflect the real culture. It does something entirely antithetical to black progress. And then I think black progress is one of those things people are like, well, I don't need black people to progress. I just need me to progress. But they don't understand. <laughs> they, they don't understand that with one comes the other. Like you can't get away from it. You can't run from yourself. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It's a, it's a challenging thing for people to understand. Jeremy's article where he tries to atomize himself as a black man, he does not realize that that isolation, he's not transcendent. He is not Barack Obama. He's not Oprah Winfrey. He's just a dude who scribbles some stuff that they think is exciting right now. And then, you know, he'll be gone next week. Or, you know. Yeah. One, one thing that was interesting in one of his um, interviews, because I've just been watching a lot of his interviews, and he contradicts himself a lot in these interviews. And I think it's kind of because he doesn't really, he hasn't really been able to form some really core values or at least learn to operate from them. Even if, even if he has core values, he hasn't learned to kind of live in them because I think he's always trying to gauge the room and always trying to be what other people want. That's kind of what I gauge from him. And it's not just me doing armchair psychoanalysis. I mean, 
the article is basically about him doing that, about seeing people needed from him, what he needed to mirror back to people for them to love him and him actually changing his life to do that. You know, so it's not just me just, you know, arrogantly uh, psychoanalyzing him. This is uh, his own words. But yeah, I noticed different things would kind of come out of his mouth that contradicted itself. And I'm like, it's kind of because you don't really have a core yet and you're just reacting or trying to be a mirror to people. But one of the things that he said when he was being interviewed about the show and the problem is like whenever black people interview him a lot of times the people from like buzzfeed or new york times or whatever who are steeped in the same um environment you know the kind of people he probably went to school with or whatever and they'll be asking him about the play and it'll be like puff pieces there's no challenging um questions or anything but one was asking like uh his experience and he was going through great pains to praise the white people at yale and he, he was like yeah, the all these different people at you know Yale really helped me with this and helped me marshal it and helped me bring it to life and whatever. And his way of praising them was to say, um, yeah, got out of my way. They didn't stop me from expressing myself. They didn't, uh, like, their hands-offness was supposed to be their uh, strength because that's part of the big white ally industrial complex now. Like, they like to talk about, you know, oh, to be a good ally, you should let black people lead and be listening and stuff and, and all this stuff. And I'm like, it's nice to be listened to, but you're brand new. You need you need mentoring. It's almost scaring me that you're telling me that none of these white people are mentoring you or actually stepping in and like, you know, being strong because they're so afraid, like, you know, out of like, you know, white liberalism or white guilt or whatever you want to say, or not even white guilt. I think give them too much credit for empathy. I think it's more like they just don't care what you're doing to black people. So they don't, they just don't, they just don't care. They don't care enough to get involved. That's really well, what it is. It's not yeah, really, um, yeah, guilt. no, I think that, you know, and I, I don't want place. I, I, no. Okay. So one of the things I was going to say about people being hands off and letting people express themselves. I think that there is a late 20th century, and this is not about a modernist recall, but the notion that you can express yourself is the apogee of your art. The fact that you can express yourself and that your art doesn't have a connection to a larger community. Now, I'm only saying this because I I think that this is the case. When Jeremy was at Yale, I think that Lynn Nottage was his teacher. And I've known Lynn for a minute. So, I, oh, so I'm only saying this because I think that, I mean, it's not just white people who um, marshal these people forward. However, I do think that one of the things that happens is that there are mechanisms in place in which when you are telling your story, you consciously can say to somebody, I'm not trying to hurt black people. I am just trying to help white people. Do you know what I mean? Like I think, and this is not, this is not, um, this is not castigating Lynn's entire oeuvre, but I'm just going to say this about Lynn Nottage's play Ruined, right? So in Ruined, um, her character, Mama Nada, who is in charge of this brothel in the Belgian Congo, the Congo, which I'm going to mention something about Belgium in a second, gives this diamond to this white guy at near the end of the play because it's valuable. Now I'm like, why is this white guy in the world of the play? The reason why the white guy is in the world of the play is in part because he gives the audience, the majority of the audience, entree into that world. And in that yes. world, Lynn, because, you know, she's smart about how she's making her play, she's not going to castigate the Belgians or the, uh, or, or the history of, of atrocities that happened in the Belgian Congo. She's not going to do that because... Her play is about the atrocities that the Congolese are doing to each other today so that you can't put the context on it because then it becomes something else. You know what I mean? It, it becomes it becomes a wider thing. And it's about 
you know, and, and her play, as earnest as it was, cannot do all those other things because it has to sit in a, in a place. And then um, the place being something that the American theater can gaze and to, and to engage with directly. I mean, that's... It's, yeah. And, and, and feel some distance yeah. from. Like, I feel like a lot, of, a lot of slave movies do that. They kind of make the slave owners so caricatured, uh-huh. racist. And they also tend to have like one or two good white yeah. people there, usually from the North, so, so that the white person could say, hey, if I was there in right. that time, I would have right. been that guy. I would have been Brad Pitt at the end of the movie, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Or or or, yeah. or or at worst or at worst I would have been Benedict Cumberbatch, meaning that I didn't do the most I could do, but I was just a decent person that was weak. But you know, I wouldn't be uh, what's what's his name? Uh, Fast Yo, Bender. Fassbender. 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 Yeah, you Michael, Michael Fassbender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the one thing I was just saying about that story that um, Jeremy was saying because I was going by his story, so he didn't mention that he had any black mentors. But it was kind of disturbing to me that he thought all he needed was white people to get out of his way, but he didn't feel like he needed black elders, at least according to his story. Maybe he was just telling them what they wanted to hear. But to me, I was like, uh, sometimes you need a black elder who's been through where you're going through before to um, kind of pull your coat. Or- yeah, but he, he says he has a black elder. It's Rihanna. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the, I know, but I, I'm, I'm, be, I'm, be, I'm being serious in a, as I'm being mm-hmm. funny also. But like, it's real. Like, isn't she his age? I mean, but, that, but but yeah, but she's but she's successful. I, like mm. you know, it's like it's like it's like. See, see, that's not an elder or a mentor. That's like a template. But in but in their heads, yeah, that's 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 a that's a that's a mentor. You know, it's funny. Like when he when he did that that hot ninety seven interview, he had to keep bringing up how he lived in L A. and how he was trying to be a mover and shaker. Yeah, he was name dropping a lot in, in the Los Angeles, you know, movie scene. And I found that very interesting. I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is basically a guy who tried to kind of get in writing in writers rooms couldn't find a way to do it in the kind of tv film world and said hey let me go try to do it in the theater world but he he wants to kind of use that same mover and shaker ethic that exists in hollywood and bring it into there and like and that's the thing like these people are not going to look for mentors in the traditional way you know what i'm saying um maybe i don't know his relationship with lynn nottage i mean maybe you know better than i but interesting that lynn nottage was his teacher because I saw her play Sweat and I actually had some issues with that one as well when I saw that on Broadway. It's just how she kinds of I felt um, evened out the kind of idea of race and class in America. Just it, it seemed it's honestly seemed very liberal, white pleasing. And I could see why it was on Broadway. I was like, oh, I know why this is on Broadway, because this is a vision of, of race and class in America in the Bush era. That's very, very pleasing for white liberals and they won't feel threatened at all or really even accountable for anything that kind of happens there. But, you know, Jeremy, I'm like for him. He's looking at these people like, you know, he loves that he's with Ebro. I'm sure when he when 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 those mics were off, he was hitting Ebro with all types of questions about like, hey, how to do this, how to do that, and how to do this and how to do that. But someone from the theater who probably no one knows except for other black people, you know what I'm saying? That ain't gonna be relevant to him. And, and, and there, was, there was a boomerang, I think, happening because you said he's from the TV world. He couldn't get into it. I feel like he's using kind of like how some people use stand up comedy just because they want to act. They don't really have a care about the craft of comedy. I'm not saying he doesn't care about theater. I'm not I'm not going to 
say that about him. I don't know him enough, but he seems like he's really eager to get back into TV. And he's already a consultant on that show, um, Euphoria. Yeah. So, yeah. And he has a he has a film. He has a film that he co-wrote with uh, with, with uh, Janiska Bravo. Yeah. Based on a Twitter thread. Yeah. Which is which is which. I mean, you know, the thing. Yeah. I'm sorry. But I was going to say the thing, which is it's like TV or even Broadway as a litmus test for black art is always weird. You know, and I mean, yeah. I, I said, I, I forgot, I guess I've been teaching now for 20 years and I was, at, I was, I used to teach at Bard and I had a student who came in once and she said, did I know, this is in the nineties. She said, did I know that Britney Spears has sold more records than Aretha Franklin? And I said, what? I said, that's not possible. She said, no, it's true. And I, at the time I didn't go to check it and I didn't go to engage it. But at the time I said to the student, I said, the truth of the matter is I'm not dissing Britney Spears. But Aretha Franklin, that's time capsule art making. That's some stuff that you ain't gonna yeah. that you ain't gonna get too many of them. Ever. Ever in the history of humanity, you ain't gonna get a voice like that. People will come and go on Broadway. That's part of the reason why I mentioned Garland Anderson's appearances. Then you got other people like Marita Bonner, who wrote this play called Purple Flower in the 20s. I teach it all the time. I directed it up in Boston. It's one of the great plays of the 20th century. And I don't know if people are ever gonna discover it. But my hope is that it lasts outside of this moment of celebrity. You know what I mean? Like, that's one of those things. I think Broadway as a litmus test is one of my one of my big challenges. Now, I know that in the theater world, everybody holds up August Wilson as this, you know, because his 10 plays were on Broadway and all this stuff. But even August. Right. And I'm going to I'm going to give you one of his plays. My Rainey's Black Bottom is not written for a black audience. Joe Turner's Come and Gone is. My Rainey's Black Bottom mm. is telling white America that they stole black people's music. Most people in black America in the 80s were aware of that. Do you know what I'm saying? I'm like, I'm not, I'm not saying that, it, yeah. but I mean, black people knew what time it was. They were, you know, they weren't asleep on that. Yeah. But the other thing is August thing, that's 1982. And Ronald Reagan is in office and it's a different world. Do you know what I'm saying? What I'm thinking, what I, and I put it in an article, part of the reason why the Jeremy is embraced now is because Trump is in office. And people are like, wait a second. We are, as a country, aren't that racist, are we? And, and, you, <laughs> are and we? you said that in your and you said, and you said that in your article. In your yeah. in your article, you said forty five was not a retreat, but instead a revelation of national tendencies, if not national character. And I thought that was a great I, yeah um, I mean, line it, in your it's article. T- it's tough. It's tough to say that that's the truth, but. Um, I think it was Saturday Night Live when Trump got elected and they did this bad skit. And I think Damon Wayans might have been on the show. And all these white people are up in arms and black people are like, uh-huh, that's what we knew was going to happen. Oh, oh yeah. It, was, it wasn't Damon Wayans. It was uh, Chris Rock and... Right. Dave it was Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle. They're like, uh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, fun, f- fun fact, Damon Wayans is banned from Saturday Night Live. Oh, is <laughs> I didn't know that. I yeah, didn't know yeah, that. yeah. He he used to be on it, and uh, he he played a cop gay for no reason, and and they uh, fired they fired. <laughs> oh, him I didn't know that. Day. I did. I wow. never knew. I just knew like him. Bet. I knew he did live in color. I thought he guest spot, but yeah, that was that was Chris and and Dave Chappelle, and uh, and I do think that's part of the thing. Like all these people hand ringing, and they can't believe that these people have been doing this stuff and. Say, I'm like, America has has reverted back. I mean, it it hasn't reverted back. It's just exposed itself. And I do think that that's one of the challenges is how do we deal with this and our national tendencies to uh, destroy the other. And so what a lot of liberal spaces are like, oh, no, no, I'm going to show you we're not like that. 
We're going to pluck this yeah. thing, this artistic product, and we're going to show it to everybody. See, we're not like the rest of those people. Yeah, there's a future There's, there's a future song called Mask Off, and I feel like that's what happened. Uh, America went mask off, and now they're desperately trying to fumble and put the mask back on uh, right now. And I think uh, that's basically what's happening. All right, y'all, so... That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.